0: for the reading of God's word. And as we read God's word, pray for Kyle, cuz this will be an interesting one for him to preach on. 1 <laughs> Peter 3:18 through 22. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves us, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This is the word of God. We now pray for the pastor, the preacher, for the word that he'll be sharing with us. May it be communicated to you in the miracle of understanding, whether in our minds or
1: in the lips of the preacher, deliver what you have for us. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So um, excited about our upcoming um, opportunities to grow in our faith. Um, If you're believers already, there's a a lot going on this month and just really incredible times where we can be challenged. You'll be hearing a little bit more about those things. Um, in the future. Easter we use in particular um, to reach to our friends and family, people that maybe just need um, to hear the, the good news of Jesus Christ, um, to be encouraged by the gospel. We just want to encourage you, um, you know, they say in church world that um, the biggest days for church attendance are Easter um, and Christmas. You guys have heard of this before. Um, but they actually say in a lot of different research that I've done and, and training that I've received, that that's not true for new for new churches like ours, because we're the weird new church that no one really knows what they're doing in there. So they, they go, people that are usually gonna go to church, that don't normally go to church, will go to the ones that look like churches, right? Or their grandmas or things like that. So on Easter and Christmas, we really lean heavily on you guys um, to, to just in, invite people, to bring people that might not choose this church to, to come to. So I just want to encourage you to, to think about that. This is more than just about filling up seats, too. By the way, this is because we love people and we really believe strongly that the gospel is the power of salvation to those who believe, like Paul said in Romans chapter one. So be praying about that. Write down some names of people that you might invite. Um, you know, offer breakfast, going out to breakfast before or lunch after, something like this, um, to to them. You know, family, p- people that you're normally spending time with anyway consider them during this time. But yeah, as um, um, Joe was mentioning, um, we're in a passage of scripture this morning that if you're not a, if you're not a Christian might seem a little kind of spooky. Um, if you are a Christian, depending on what I say about this, you might not like me anymore, right? Because like, believe it or not, they say that Christians are the only ones that shoot their wounded, right? Like, so um, <laughs> have you heard this? Um, but let's not do that to me, okay, this morning. Give me, give me patience if you don't like how I interpret this passage. But let's just go. Let's dive in. Um, have you ever had uh, in, a police escort in your life? Raise your hand. Right? In a good way. Not like you were arrested or they're bringing you to jail. I mean like in a good way. You've got a police escort. Some years ago, I attended the funeral of an old friend. His name was Mike um, Butho. Actually, if you go down to that new bridge, it's not, i guess it's not that new anymore in Somerset. There's a there's a walking path, and I think there's a plaque on that path in his honor. But um, he passed away tragically in the second Iraq War, and a couple of years ago—not not a couple of years. This was many years ago now, maybe like 10 years ago. Um, there was a funeral for him, and a funeral which I attended. Maybe even some of you attended as well, because um, some of us have similar church backgrounds. I pulled up to the church that day, and it was just really inspired um, and in awe of what I saw. Because when I pulled in, um, I saw what seemed to be hundreds of cars. Um, and most of these people didn't even know Michael, just, but they were there to honor his memory and his sacrifice uh, because of um, um, he lost his life for his country. So there seemed to be just hundreds of cars. But, but to me, what was even more impressive than that was not so much how many people went out to honor him but was the literally what seemed to be at least 100 motorcycles um, off in the distance, um, just parked with all the bikers sitting on the bikes, and them and all the police cars that were present that day. <clears throat> I, I pulled in, and I just kind of was, I was wondering at this. And who are these people? Um, these bikers, no doubt, did not know Michael at all, and uh, the police, of course, didn't know him either. None of them went into the funeral either, they just stayed outside and they sat on their bikes. How many people have ever experienced something like this in their life at a military funeral? They were basically there for two reasons, respect and security. Um, Because believe it or not, unfortunately in our world there are people that will protest military funerals, so these bikers were there to make sure that that didn't happen. They stayed out on the peripheral. To make sure that no uh, troublemakers came in at a very difficult time for their family um, who suffered that loss. So when the the, the church service was over, we all got in our cars and we headed to um, the the grave site in the processional, as I'm sure you're all familiar with. At the front of the processional was this parade of police cars. And at, and at at the end of the processional was these bikers and more police cars. They were sort of flanking everybody in this processional to escort them to the the grave site. So we continued down the line, being escorted by this um, incredible site. Um, And when we were en route, almost no traffic laws applied. Police were blocking intersections. They were riding ahead of us to make sure that intersections with stoplights and th- because the processional was so enormous, they wanted to make sure no one got in the, m- in, in the fray of this thing. So they, w- they would speed up ahead of us to those stoplights to make sure that no one accidentally um, cut in. And I know we, we have all accidentally done that in the past, right? So it was just really incredible to be part of this processional. It's as if I was the most important person on the earth, even though it wasn't about me. But you sort of felt like that. Like, we had these rights through stop signs, through stoplights, Everybody around us had to yield to us. Not because of who we were, but because of who our escort was, right? Remove the authority, remove the police, remove the funeral directors, and then we're just a large posse breaking the law, right? (laughs) Isn't that true? We could end up dying or getting arrested or both. Well, maybe not both. But when we had that identity, excuse me, when we had that escort, we had a new power, didn't we? A new new identity, even. They brought us through something that if we were alone, if we attempted this on our own, we would get in trouble, certainly. Without the escort, it would be dangerous, wouldn't it, for us to behave like this? But that day, my little Oldsmobile Alero, that's the car I was driving at the time was the police. That day, my little Oldsmobile Alero were the bikers. right? I was part of them. They were escorting me. In our text, I find something similar as Christians. That we have a similar escort in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But the stakes are a lot higher than a war protester or an angry motorist not realizing that It's okay for me to go through a red light. In our last sermon, we dealt with the text that reminded us that it's better to suffer for Jesus' sake than to suffer for doing evil. You remember the sermon we talked about? It's better to suffer for Jesus' sake than to suffer for doing evil. So Peter's reminding us that the Christian life, and this is the hard news that we all have to grapple with, the Christian life, when when lived faithfully, includes pain and includes suffering. Sometimes that suffering is directly related to a Christian virtue or a Christian witness that we hold dear. Our text this morning, Peter continues to encourage burdened Christians with three principles. The Christian, number one, is brought to God. The Christian, number two, is brought through water. And the Christian, number three, is brought to glory. They're brought to God, brought through water, brought to glory. Underline brought. Someone carries us there. Escorts us there. That without which his w- without his escort, we would never make it on our own. The Christian has an escort. The Christian has a hundred bikers and police surrounding us. More authoritative than these and more powerful than all of them combined. Christ is the believer's saving escort. So let's first look at this. Our escort brings us to God. Brings us to God. And this is in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might underline bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. On our own, we can't run through red lights. With the police, we can On our own, we cannot stand in the presence of God without being consumed by his glorious holiness because we are sinners. But with the presence of Christ, we endure. We stand like that bush that should have been consumed by the presence of God, the burning bush with Moses, but was not. So should we be consumed at the presence of God. But because of our escort, we are insulated. We are protected. We are made righteous by virtue of his righteousness, so that we are not consumed. Christ's suffering led to the forgiveness of sin and the liberation of souls. That's what this verse is saying, that because Christ suffered and died on the cross, what he accomplished was the forgiveness of our sin and the liberation of souls. So Peter's again emphasizing this idea that when you suffer as a Christian, that if you suffer patiently, and with enduring hope, it will bring blessing to other people around you, just as it did with Christ. They will be, if you recall this passage we studied last week, they will be ashamed, these are the people slandering um, the, the Christians or Christ or the like, they will be ashamed of their unjust injury, just like the Roman soldier was, and just like Saul was at the stoning of Stephen, when he stood by the cloaks, he saw his patient endurance of suffering, and it led Saul to faith in Jesus Christ. So our prototype of this, the model of suffering for the cause of others, patiently and enduring, is Jesus Christ himself. He is the model for all of the Christia- Christ followers enduring pain. So when you're going through suffering as a Christian, perhaps even because of your faith, we, we must look to Christ. We must remember what he did for us, because therein is our power. And the model of Christ that's given here in verse 18 gives us a short form, like, like a concentrate juice. You guys know when you, you have to mix juice with water, otherwise it would be way too powerful? The, verse 18 is like packed with why Jesus died for us, why Jesus died for people. <clears throat> so what we have here in short form is an explanation of what scholars and theologians, Bible students over the years, have called the atonement. It's a fancy $100 word that you can use to impress your friends. But but this, this this is describing the atonement of Jesus Christ. That is, what was happening when Jesus died on the cross? Why did he die on the cross? And what was accomplished at his death? So in the short verse, we see a few different things, don't we? Verse 18. He died for sins, right? For Christ also died for sins. It doesn't say because of an injustice. It doesn't say because the Romans were jerks, and the, right? It doesn't say any of this. He died for sins, for our sins. He died for sins. What, is, what else does it say, though? He died for sins once and for all. We're going to get to this in a moment. He is innocent and just, died for the guilty and for the unjust. Not friends. He wasn't dying to rescue some innocent person. He was dying to rescue his enemies. Amazing. He died, we also read in verse 18, so that the dead would have life and that we would be brought to God. So here we have in this one quick verse... An incredible statement of what Jesus did at the cross of Christ for us. The death of Jesus was in atonement. That means it made us one with God should you put faith in Jesus Christ. He was paying a debt. This is what the atonement basically means. That Jesus was paying the debt of sinners that they owed because God is righteous. That they owed to God. You know, um, if you read Psalm chapter 7, it's a very hard psalm to read. It's really not the American version of Jesus or God. It's a very difficult passage to read. It makes clear something that it says in Psalm chapter 7, and this is sobering. God is angry with the sinner every day. That's not the God we talk about nowadays, is it? He loves us all. He'll take us anyway. That's how we talk about God. But when you read Psalm chapter 7, he wets his sword. Because God is a righteous judge. That's a tough one. You know, can I just say this right off the bat? If your God, I've said this before, but if your God always agrees with you, then you don't have a God. You have you. If God is real, and if he is true, we should expect him to rub up against us sometimes, to even contradict us, because otherwise we'd just have a God in our own making. We would just basically be claiming that I'm God because everything that I'm saying is who he is. He should rub us the wrong way. If he's real, we should expect that, is my point. And that's what we have happening all over the Bible. And by the way, to 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 really make this real, um, we have to remember that Jesus Christ is said to be God in the flesh, that he is the Son of God who always was and always will be. So Jesus is God according to Scripture. He took on flesh to die for sin, but he always was and always will be. Jesus is God in the flesh. So that puts Psalm 7 into a little bit of a more sobering context. Context. Jesus is angry with the sinner every day. Jesus. Because I kind of feel like that's important because we have sometimes this habit of making God the mad one and Jesus the happy one, right? Right? Jesus is the loving one who's trying to settle down a ticked-off dad. Right? Like, we have this idea that that's how it works, but that's not how it works, friends. This gets better, though, so don't walk out yet. (laughs) (laughs) Romans makes plain, Romans chapters 1 through 3, makes plain that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That God is not mocked. That there is a consequence. But, The free gift of God is eternal life. Friends, when Jesus died, he was satisfying the justice of God, the righteousness of God. God could not accept us into his loving presence unless sin was paid for. He could not just look it over. Oh, and what a wonderful principle we have to add to this, that Jesus died once once. It's not continued, like so paying for sin happened one time in Christ. It's not continued in purgatory, this kind of payment for sin. We don't partner in the forgiveness of our own sin when we break bread through communion. That's not what's happening. Jesus Christ died once and that death was sufficient to cover and remove every single sin, past, present, and future, to declare you righteous and innocent. It is as if you have always, in Christ, made the right decision. Can you picture that in your minds? I, I mean, I, I have a, um, a story of my life that, much of which I wonder, why did I do such a thing? Things I'm ashamed of. But in, in, in the economy of God's grace... It's as, av- as if in that moment I made the right choice and not the wrong one. Isn't that incredible? It's gone. It's paid for. And you are declared righteous in God. You know, Hebrews 9 makes this plain. Christ's sacrifice was perfect and final and therefore unrepeatable. We can't repeat it. We're not repeating it right now, we're not partnering with the death of Christ. to to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. It was done. Hebrews, a a place in the New Testament, makes this plain. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. It's talking about Christ presenting the sacrifice to God the Father in heaven. He did not do this again and again the way like the the priest did in the Old Testament, enters the holy place or the tabernacle every year with the blood of lambs. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by his sacrifice. Once for all and finally. So you know what that means? Oh, this is great news. If you're in Christ, the work is finished. It's done. You are his You are adopted, and all of all of your demonstration of good works and praise and prayer and and intimacy with God is not to earn his favor, it's because you already have it. Isn't that great? You already have it. The innocent one we, we just mentioned that the friend of God took the place of the guilty one. Insert our names. Why would an enemy of God, as the Bible calls us, and again, this is hard and sobering, why why would God, who is angry with the sinner every day, die for the sinner? The God who is angry with the sinner every day, Psalm 7, is the same one who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who would ever believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. A God... Who is only just, now think about this a God who is only just and only righteous would never forgive sin. You'd, uh, he'd always condemn it. You'd always, just like our court system, right? If you're guilty, you have to do the time. That's the, that's, those are the rules. If the courts didn't do that, what's it there for? If it was like, oh no, that's all right, you can go. I just decided, you know, it's okay this time. That's not why they're there. They're they're there to uphold justice. We expect them to do that. We want them to do that. If God was only justice, we would never be forgiven. But friends, if God is only love, then the the wicked freedom that we demonstrate so frequently throughout our lives and throughout human history would go without check, would go without consequence. We don't want that either, right? Right? You see, friends, the God we want, if we're really honest, is a God who is love and a God who is just. We we have to have both, because otherwise sin reigns or we are hopeless. You see, Jesus Christ came because God is just and love. He took the justice of God and demonstrated loving forgiveness should you simply come to him in repentant faith. Isn't that great? The same God forgives our sin, crucifies our flesh, breathes life to our spirit. Salvation isn't simply the assurance of heaven, the place. It's the assurance of new life, both now and then. The lost are found. The sinner is sanctified. That is made like Jesus. And all of this through suffering. See, the point Peter is trying to make here is that look at what was accomplished when Christ suffered for us. Look what he did for us. In the same way, when we are patient and we endure the suffering that is the result of persecution for our faith, it is to the salvation and blessing of those around us. That's the conclusion. That's the life it gives. That's the power in it. Amen? So Christ is the believer's saving escort to God the Father. But number two, he brings us through the waters. So Christ is the believer's saving escort to God, and he brings us through the waters. And we see this in verses 19 through 20. It says this again. In which also... He went and made proclamation to the, to the spirits, now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely, there's that escort, brought safely through the waters. Now this is a passage of scripture that has confused theologians throughout church history. There have been many different interpretations about um, what Bible scholars think this means. So the, the, the passage is quite baffling. And if you, if you read it, you might be kind of curious what, what it's talking about here and why it's important. Let me just give you a little bit of background. You all know the story of Noah, right? It's bringing up Noah. It's bringing up people who were rebellious towards Noah and because of that were condemned. Right, and it says that at the preach that Christ um, preached, it seems as if preached to these spirits who are now in prison, and but, but for what purpose? So there, there are many different understandings of this. Martin Luther, actually, he was the great reformer of the fifteen hundreds. He wrote, I don't. He wrote really honestly. I like this guy for this. I don't really know for a certainty just what Peter means here. <laughs> Thanks, that's helpful, Martin. Um, But if you kind of comb through different scholars throughout church history, you're going to know a lot of different, they land a lot of different places on what they think this passage means. I want to simply explain to you what I think it means. Um, And I'm going to get into some variants of this um, as we continue. But let me just kind of tell you what I think this means. And we're going to put this up on the slide so you can read read along with me. Here's how I would paraphrase this or explain it. Jesus in spirit, spoke through Noah. And he preached to those who were then disobedient to that preaching, whose spirits now are in prison. During this preaching, God patiently waited and gave opportunity for anyone to respond in repentance, at which only a few, eight in total, responded and were brought safely through the floodwaters." Now, you might be a little confused at what I'm saying here, but maybe it will make more sense if I explain to you some other ideas of what this passage means. Some people have suggested that when Jesus died and was put in the grave, his spirit at that time went to a place of hell or Hades or suffering. So people who had already died, Jesus went to them and spoke to them a message, preached to them, right? These are the same, what Scripture refers to as the spirits in prison, the same spirits who were disobedient um, when the presence of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, okay? So for some reason, after Jesus died, this is what some people think, um, after Jesus died, his spirit went to hell to proclaim victory to the spirits in prison. Now, who are the spirits? Well, some people claim they were simply disobedient people. Some people claim they were angels, who didn't keep their proper place? There's, like again, there's a lot of different ideas and other passages that seem to support them as well. But I take this passage to mean that Christ, in spirit, spoke through Noah, not at the time of his death or when he died or after he ascended, but at the time, because Christ is without beginning or ending, at the time, the Son of God, because He is God, His spirit spoke through Noah to call people to repentance, okay? That's what I see this as saying. It seems more likely that Peter's saying this here, and I want to explain to you why I, I draw this conclusion, okay? And then we're going to get to why it's important for some of you who are like, why are we even talking about this? So let, let's get to this, okay? Um, number one, angels are not said to have disobeyed during the building of the ark, Okay? Um, the, the, this text is very specific here. They disobeyed during the building of the ark. The Bible doesn't say that angels disobeyed. The Bible talks about disobedient angels. They're called fallen angels. Okay. Um, there's different ideas about when they fell um, and how they demonstrate uh, and after they fell when they maybe had like heightened parts of resistance towards God's will. But it wasn't during the building of the ark. The Bible says that Mankind came up against Noah during the building of the ark, so that's the first reason I don't think that Jesus um, is th- that this is a reference to angels. Spirits in Scripture can refer to men or angels. Okay, so it's really not clear by the word spirits alone. We can't just assume that the word spirits means like some kind of demon or an angel or anything like this. So, so again, number one, angels are not said to have disobeyed during the building of the ark. Number two. The preaching that Noah was doing was for the purpose of repentance. And here's how, why I think that. It's because it says that God waited patiently after this preaching. Well, what's he waiting for? My assumption is that he is waiting for a response from the hearer. Right? He's waiting for a response from the hearer. Fallen angels are never offered the opportunity in Scripture to repent. So we can't, that's off the, for me, that's off the table. It can't be angels. The Bible is also clear that there is no second chance for humanity after life. So if Jesus is preaching, is preaching for the purpose of repentance to people after life, after they've died, we would have a serious theological problem because it contradicts many other places in Scripture. So the preaching, my conclusion is, this preaching must have been to living people. Okay? Some translations read that Christ preached to the spirits in prison. If you have a different translation of the Bible, it might, you might read that and see that. And that, that's kind of confusing. Like, Christ, after he died, you, you draw this conclusion that Christ, after he died, went somewhere and preached to spirits, presumably in hell or a place like this. Right, But that's actually not really a, a good interpretation of this. Um, the translation we used um, this morning is the New American Standard Translation of the Bible. It says, the spirits who are now in prison, though not at the time. You see? Does that make sense? It's like saying um, the Queen of England was born in 19-whatever. Well, she wasn't the queen at the time. The person who is now queen was born, you see, you see what I mean? So just be, so that that's a better translation. First Peter chapter four verse six. We have the same problem. Okay, watch this. Because one translation reads, "For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead." So what does that mean? The gospel does that mean a second chance after you die? That's not what it means at all. Um, again, the Bible is very clear in many places um, that that um, to be absent from from our bodies is to be present with God. Luke chapter 16, there is a gulf fixed between um, the unredeemed and the redeemed that there is no passing through, okay? But for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. The New International Version realizes the, the clumsiness of this translation, so they fixed it, and they said, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, See, that makes it a little bit more clear. That means the gospel was preached to a generation prior, though they're dead now. Does that make sense? Okay. So the the New American Standard Version might be misinterpreted as saying that there's some kind of second chance. But our text seems to be saying the same thing, that Jesus' spirit preached through Noah to people who, because of their unbelief, are now spirits in prison. You with me? Okay. Okay. Finally, let me, clo- let me just wrap this up in a bow, okay? Christ's spirit preaching through Noah fits the context. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 if you have your Bibles in verse 10. It says this, Concerning the salvation, the prophets, this is the same letter, okay? Keep that in mind. This is the same letter. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke, this is, these are Old Testament people, okay? around the time of Noah and after. The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. What this is saying, what Peter's saying is, is that the prophets of old were being directed by the Spirit of Christ. So in the same way, The Spirit of Christ preached repentance through Noah to the same who rejected him who are now bound in prison. Does that all make sense to you? So that's the best I can do with that. (laughs) Okay, I know there are a lot of different opinions, and if you have one, that's great. Um, that's, That's what I think it means, but I think that this is the point. This is the application. Why does this matter? Why is this important? Friends, if the Spirit of Christ speaks the prophets, and if the Spirit of Christ spoke through Noah, people who were suffering for the cause of that message, people who suffered at the other end of, of persecution because they spoke in the Spirit of Christ, if the Spirit of Christ spoke through them and they endured suffering through it, friends, you will too. The Spirit of Christ speaks through you When you open your mouth and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, and whatever else might result, the Lord is with you. Just like he was with Noah, just like he saved him through the water, through the suffering, so will you be. You see, that's the encouraging, that's the application to this. God patiently waited then, he patiently waits now. If he patiently waited then at the preaching of Noah, then that means that when we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, even though it might be met with hostility and anger, God is patiently waiting now so that the, the, those same hostiles might one day understand the beauty of Christ because of the patience of God. Amen? What's more, we can add to this, Noah endured much slander, As a result of his proclaiming rescue, and this is hard, but so will the faithful Christian. When we we demonstrate for some reason the love of Jesus Christ, it is often met with hostility. But through that patient endurance, the suffering one, some will respond and some will be rescued. Eight in total, according to Noah's account in that day. We're not given a number today. Anyone that responds in faith to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, through his death and resurrection, will be saved through the flood, will be saved, he will bring you through the flood, the flood of God's anger, the flood of loss, the flood of death, the flood of divorce, all of it, he brings you through it. You're safe in him. The ark is a picture the, of, of what you're being brought in. It's a picture of safety. Well, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. You see, Jesus is the ark. He's the better ark, the one that can never sink. Oh, but friends, don't be caught outside. Respond in faith to Jesus. He's better. He's good. He loves you. You're being called on. Oh, would you respond this moment to that loving call? So burning Christians are encouraged by this, I think, that the Christian is brought to God, brought through water, and finally brought to glory, brought to glory. Corresponding to that, it says in verse 21, baptism now saves you. Oh, another one. Here we go. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, But an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels. Where is Jesus after his resurrection? Where does he go? He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subject to him. He wins authority, power. Just like Noah was saved through the judgment waters, so will the death and resurrection of Christ bring the repentant sinner, now cleansed by Christ, to share in the glory of Jesus. Isn't that incredible? Let's think about this again, because what does it say about Jesus here? Jesus is at the right hand of God. This is what he won. This is the right he earned. When he went to heaven, he's at the right hand of God, and he has power over all authorities and over all creation. And let's get to, we're going to get to this in a moment because this hopefully will blow your mind. Some people have claimed that this verse is teaching that for a person to be forgiven of sin and made right with God, that they need to be physically baptized, like in actual water. So in other words, if, if God's anger is going to be satisfied, you need to trust in Christ and be baptized. If you are without baptism, then you remain in your sin. That's what some people contend about baptism. And simply because this place, and maybe one or two others, it sort of implies that, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Well, there's that word save. Save from what? Well, presumably, um, being saved um, from what is the consequence and result of sin. So some have claimed this. But friends, if you, if you read carefully, it's actually not that difficult. It's not the physical act of baptism that he, sa- he says saves you. Because what does he say right after? Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. I'm not talking about that baptism. You see? Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not the physical act of baptism that saves you, the, that which you get dunked into water, right, the removal of dirt from the body, but that which this, the physical act symbolizes. You see, Romans chapter 6 says that you were baptized into Christ's death and you are raised with him in his resurrection. See, what it's talking about there is what, what spiritually has happened with us. In baptism, what it symbolizes is that our flesh, our old person, our sin is crucified in the water, so to speak. But we rise up with Christ spiritually and are given a new life. You see, baptism doesn't do this for you, it just simply symbolizes it. An appeal to God for a good conscience is equivalent to basically asking God to forgive sin and to give a new heart. And this he does on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. And that's our assurance, by the way, that all of our sin is gone forever. And we now stand in right relationship with God. Listen to Hebrews 9, because it basically says the same thing. How much more will the blood of Christ... What's the blood of Christ? His death for us in our place. right? That's presumably satisfying the anger of God for our sin. He's paying for it. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See, in this passage, it's saying what cleanses our conscience? The sacrifice of Christ. In the other passage, it seems to be saying baptism, but it's not. It's saying that what baptism symbolizes, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Does that make sense? We have to be very careful for this because when we do baptisms here, we don't think that anything sort of magical is happening or that somehow we're partnering with the death of Christ to have a person's sins forgiven. We are simply doing it as a demonstration of faith and what we believe God did for us spiritually. Does that make sense? Through our co-crucifixion and co-resurrection, if you put your faith in Jesus... It's as if you died and you were resurrected. That's what I mean by co-crucifixion, and that's in Romans chapter 6. Through our co-crucifixion and co-resurrection with Christ on the basis of faith, you put faith in this and it happens, we're brought through the, the flood and we share in the rewards Christ won. That's what this passage is saying. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities, powers, have been subjected to him. Friends, Jesus Christ right now, the Bible attests that after his resurrection, he ascended into heaven. And this passage makes plain what exactly happened there. He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers, and been subject to him. Being at the right hand of God for Christ, what that means is that Jesus, the resurrected God-man, shares in God's authority over all creation. That's what it means to be at his right hand. He said, didn't he have that? Wasn't he God before? Yes. But do you realize that you and I were supposed to have that too? We were supposed to be the governors of the earth, to rule over the earth, to subdue it. That's what God told Adam and Eve. But we lost it. Jesus became a man to represent our humanity so that he could win it back for us. So for the first time, a man, the God-man, sat down at the right hand of Christ, winning back for us what we always should have had to begin with. That is to reign over God's creation under his power. Isn't that incredible? And friends, when you're in Christ, that's what you have. Listen to some of these passages that talk about this further. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Then, it's talking about Christians here. We who are alive and remain until the coming of Christ, the Bible teaches Jesus is coming back, when Jesus comes back, this is what the Bible says, we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds, we will not die, to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we always be with the Lord on his side. So Jesus is on the right hand of God, and we are on the right hand of Christ. Revelation chapter 2 He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. That's believers in Christ now, because we're in Christ. Christ won that. And now, because we're in Christ, we share it. We will be given authority over the nations. We shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as i also have received as i also have received authority from my father so will you can you believe it i can't even tie my shoes and god is going to give me and you this kind of glory brought to glory that's our escort that's where he's bringing us to ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 even when we were dead in our transgressions he made us alive together with christ By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, what is in view here, the vision, is that in faith, one day when you pass through the flood of death, you will rise and sit down at his right hand too. Isn't that incredible? Oh, there's nothing to fear. Or you, you might lose your house, or you, you lose your job, or something like this. And these are hard, and I get it, but there's nothing to fear. Because one day, you'll rise again. And one day, you'll be sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. Oh, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of. What about now, though? Okay, good. I'm glad you asked. 2 <laughs> Corinthians chapter 10. What does that do for me now? Right? For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare now are not flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What that's saying is that you have power now, right now, to live and walk with God, to live in his peace and his joy and his love, to be able to forgive a fault, to be able to have hope and trust. You see, that's the power now, to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. That's what he gives you now. So there I am, surrounded by cops and motorcycles. (laughs) At every intersection, I see police stopping cars for us so that we can pass through. I had a legal escort that day. I could legally pass through. And you know what? I had a powerful one, too. They had the power to stop anyone that was going to try to stop us. Didn't they? I had a powerful escort, and I had a legal one. And if I didn't have those things, I wouldn't have survived. Neither would the rest of us. Friends, it's the same in Christ. Oh, suffering Christian, behold your escort because he has you he is your legal escort he takes you through legally even though we are illegal (laughs) we are guilty but he forgives our sin and he can legally bring us to that glory he holds our hands he escorts us through dark valleys and through difficult times his spirit is with you every time you speak for him The Spirit of Christ is with you. Just like he was with Noah. Just like he was with the prophets. You are not alone. Isn't that great? And one day, he'll come with clouds. He'll call us out from the dead. And we'll be home. Oh, and if you don't know Christ this morning, the floodwaters are rising, friends. Friends. He is calling you, bidding you to come to him. And he patiently awaits your response to his gracious offer of salvation. Oh, friend, would you trust in him this morning if you don't know him? What's in your hands that you need to put down? Put it down. Come to him. He is what you've been looking for your whole life. Be buried with him in his baptism. Rise up with him in his resurrection and be escorted by him through the floods to God in his glory. Amen? Let's pray.